begun a series of talks discussing some of the most profound and impactful statements ever made. The more I study them and ponder their wisdom, the more I'm awed and convinced that these are words that can only have come from God himself. These are words that strengthen my faith in the good news of the gospel, while at the same time challenging me to my core. These are words that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, crush me to the ground, show me my utter helplessness. Were it not for the new birth, I am undone. There is nothing that so leads to the gospel and its grace. I am of course referring to the Sermon on the Mount, the first of five great discourses that Matthew records of Jesus' teaching. As Ian said in his introduction, this sermon, which spans Matthew chapters 5 through 7, is God's manifesto for human flourishing. It's the doorway to a radical new life that we're called to live out when we put our trust in Jesus and enter his kingdom. Wasn't it so good to read the whole sermon together in our community groups last week? I really felt the life-giving power of God's word washing over me as one after another folks stepped forward to read the sermon out loud together. As we listened to the sermon, we heard Jesus set out the glorious nature of life in God's kingdom as it will be in the age to come when all evil has been banished. But he wasn't just talking about life in the future. Jesus is the embodiment of the coming kingdom and he welcomes his disciples to live in the good of that kingdom life right now. There's even more. He doesn't just expect us to live in the good of his coming kingdom, but to be the way it expands and grows. He calls us to be his disciples as his kingdom ambassadors. Our transformed lives are the vessels that carry the good news of the kingdom to the very ends of the earth. The passage we're studying today follows immediately on from the Beatitudes, Jesus' description of the kinds of people that will receive his kingdom. Those that the world least expects. It's not the influencers or those holding worldly power and wealth. It's not the elites, the politicians or the religious leaders. It's the broken and the marginalized. It's the outcasts, the meek and the merciful. It's those who recognize they are poor in spirit and mourn over their sin. These words split the world in two. The Beatitudes climax with the inevitable conflict between those that embrace Jesus' message and those that reject it. The true church is just too radically different for the world to tolerate it. Jesus now turns to the response of those that have embraced him and his kingdom as they face the world. How are they to respond to the persecution, reviling and evil they'll face because of their trust in Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Surely it must be a call to war against the pagan culture, demanding that it yields to God's moral ethic. At least... That's what you might think if you read or watch some contemporary Christian social media today. War seems to have been the dominant metaphor for how Christians relate to the world. According to some commentators, 
We're in an existential war against the predominant secular culture. We're in a battle to death against lying liberals, devilish Darwinists, as one put it. But does Jesus call his disciples into a war against the culture? We are certainly challenged to do battle against the devil and the principalities and powers in the spiritual realm. In Ephesians 6, Paul calls us to armour up against the schemes of the devil, wielding the world of God to assault the enemy of our souls. We are also called to war against our flesh, those internal anti-God propensities we all have that try to make us captive to sin. In Romans 13, 14, Paul exhorts us to put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We are to put our flesh to death, to crucify it. That's undoubtedly strong, warlike language. But are we called to war against the world, against the secular culture? Jesus has just warned his listeners that the world won't receive him or his followers. Indeed, he said they'll likely be reviled and persecuted. So what does Jesus say should be our response as his disciples? Please turn with me to Matthew 5 verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Using two metaphors drawn from the everyday world of his time, Jesus illustrated what it means to be his disciple in a pagan society like salt and light. But what does that mean? Notice first that Jesus said you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. He's making statements of fact about his disciples, not commanding them to become something. Jesus is not urging his disciples to become something they're not. He's telling them what they already are. He's encouraging them to live in the good of what they've already been made by God so that they might be the vessels through which the good news of his kingdom might be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Jonathan Pennington said, both the salt and light metaphors are communicating the same idea that Jesus' disciples are now the heralds of the new and lasting covenant being affected by Jesus. Like salt, Christians may seem small and insignificant, powerless pawns under a dominant secular culture. Certainly the early church must have felt like that under the dominance of Rome. But because of the power of the kingdom, we are not powerless at all. We are not engaged in a dualistic battle between good and evil where evil is still winning. So we have to fight like crazy to stop the culture wiping out the church. The war has already been won. Through the cross, Jesus has already defeated the power of sin and death and has overcome the world. He said we'd face troubles in the world, but he doesn't ask us to fight it. Rather, we are to love it. 
just a few verses on from our passage today, he says we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. This can be such a difficult thing to hear, especially when we see all the bad stuff going on in our world. But we aren't here to do what only he can do and has already done. We're here to be heralds of the covenant, as Pennington put it. We're here to be salt and light. Like salt, our transformed lives preserve, permeate and season every part of the culture so the kingdom continues to expand and grow. Salt is a great preservative. It keeps food from spoiling. Throughout history, when the message of the gospel has been absent, society has suffered worsening moral decay. Jesus placed us into our culture such that our lives perform a preserving work in the lives that we live among. Just by being there, we make things better. Think about that for a minute. It's not that there's anything special about us in ourselves. Most certainly not. It's about the transformative power of the kingdom in us. That makes us salty. That makes us a preservative. And it doesn't take much salt to make a huge difference. Salt has an influence out of all proportion to its size and apparent value. So don't underestimate the impact of your life on others. I can remember times when I was mocked for being a Christian at my previous work. They didn't think I could hear them, but I can still remember the quips. Look out! Holy Joe is coming! We'd better behave ourselves! It was meant as a taunt, but the funny thing was, they did behave better. The environment was less toxic. Their language moderated. I never actually had to say anything about it, but I remember folk apologizing for cursing. Just by being around non-believers, we make the soil of their lives less attractive for ungodly influences and more fertile for the gospel to take root. Salt gets into everything. There's lots of road salt being applied outside right now. Salt that keeps the roads safe to drive on by melting the ice and snow. But that salt doesn't just stay on the roadways. It permeates into streams and rivers, raising chloride concentrations and causing real problems for wildlife. And for those of you that remember the 70s and 80s, that road salt found its way through the paintwork of our cars, rusting them from the inside out. Salt works its way into everything. Jesus has made us the same way. Wherever we go, so goes the kingdom. We can't help it. We're the vehicle through whom the kingdom expands and grows. We're those through whom the fragrance of the knowledge of him is spread everywhere. The aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing, as Paul puts it to the church in Corinth, we smell of Jesus. To some that's the fragrance of life, but to others it's the smell of death, like the rust in my old car. Our presence in the culture is never neutral. So you can expect that just hanging out with non-believers will cause a reaction in them. The kingdom of God in you will be at work permeating their hearts. For some, you will smell real good. They will be immediately drawn to you as their hearts open up to the gospel. But others will be repelled. 
It won't matter what you do, you smell bad to them. But don't treat them any different when they reject you. Love them, serve them, pour out your life for them. You never know what the Holy Spirit is going to do through you in their lives. God wants us to permeate the world. That means we need to engage with the culture, not get mad at it on social media. When you've been a Christian for a long time, as I have, it is easy to find yourself removed from the culture. Working for the church and loving spending time with God's people, I found myself increasingly spending time only with believers. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. We socialize with our Christian friends, we look out for Christian-run businesses to buy from, we put our kids in Christian schools. Now, none of these things is wrong at all. They're great. But if that's all we do, we may be in danger of losing our saltiness. I've had to learn to be very intentional about finding places where I can love and serve people outside of the church family, places where I can make myself available for the Holy Spirit to permeate the culture through me. If you're not doing that, can I encourage you to do the same? It might be spending social time with your co-workers, joining a sports club or a school board, maybe helping out at a theatre or joining a hiking group or a ski team. It might be just inviting your neighbours over for dinner. The important thing is to find a place where you can engage with people outside the church family, a place where the Holy Spirit can permeate the culture through you. Salt Seasons Salt enhances food by bringing out its flavour. I've never learned how to bake, but I love watching the Great British Baking Show, especially when Paul and Prue give their feedback. Dishes that look amazing to me get slammed because they weren't seasoned properly. The true flavour of the food didn't come out enough because of a lack of seasoning. It needed more zest. Jesus was full of zest. By his very presence, he raised the ordinary people's spirits. Crowds were attracted to him because he was full of the goodness of life and hope. His life in us makes us the same. Sinclair Ferguson said, Seasoning society is not a matter of being Scrooge-like personalities whose presence brings a pall of depression and whose entrance marks the exit of joy. On the contrary, the presence of God's people should increase the flavour of life. We're the ones who've received abundant life. Everything about us should express the attractiveness as well as the holiness of our Lord. We all know the kind of people Ferguson's talking about. The ones who suck the life out of a room when they speak. They've lost their saltiness. There's no zest in their speech, only a heaviness that robs everyone of any encouragement or joy. Paul says that our speech in particular should be seasoned with salt. In Ephesians 4 he said that we shouldn't let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but rather everything we say should be good and helpful, so our words are an encouragement to those who hear them. Like seasoning salt, let's make sure our lives and speech reflect what Christ has done for us, so our words proclaim the vibrant, life-giving flavour of Jesus. Now that doesn't mean we ignore or diminish the real challenges so many of us face in life, but it means we speak about our challenges through the lens of Christ and the hope that he has implanted deep within our lives. 
Jesus hasn't just made us salty. He's also made us to shine. We are the light of the world. Lights that he calls on to shine before others so they might see our good works and give glory to God. According to scientists, increasing light pollution means that less than 30% of the world's population now live somewhere that they can enjoy the full panoply of stars in the night sky. It's just too bright. In many urban areas, only the light of the very brightest stars ever makes it through the glow of the city lights. That means for most of us, we can't appreciate the absolute contrast between the darkness and light that would have been immediately apparent to Jesus' listeners. Many of those listening to Jesus would have lived in rural communities. They were familiar with what darkness really meant and with the significance of a city on a hill. The lights of Jerusalem would have been visible for many miles across the darkness of rural Palestine. The city that represented the center of their faith shone brightly across their land. So it was a remarkable and dramatic twist when Jesus said that he, not Jerusalem, was the light of the world and that in him his disciples would also be lights, sharing his kingdom mission. There are few things more important for us to understand than to realize just how dark our world is and just how bright is the light of our Savior who shines through us when we shine for him. There's a 1980s praise song by Graham Kendrick called Shine Jesus Shine. The third verse says, As we gaze on your kingly brightness, so our faces display your likeness, ever changing from glory to glory, mirrored there may our lives tell your story. He has transformed our lives to reflect his light and tell his story. We are the light our culture needs. He's placed you and me here for such a time as this. We are the ones he chose to be right here, right now, to be his beacons of light in a dark land, pointing the way to him. Spurgeon said, genuine faith in Christ turns a man from darkness to marvelous light and transforms him into light in the Lord. His aims and objectives, his desires, his speech, his actions become full of divine light, which illuminates all the chambers of his soul and then pours forth from the windows so as to be seen of men. The believer is appointed to be a lighthouse to others, a cheering lamp and a guiding star. Salvation is a sovereign work of God's grace. We can't bring anyone to a new life in Christ. But as Spurgeon said, the change that the Holy Spirit has effected in us pours forth from the windows of our lives through our good works, appointing us as lighthouses that guide people to him. Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Peter echoed Jesus when he said that we are a people chosen to declare the praises of the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He went on to challenge his readers in a similar vein to Jesus to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What an honour, but what a responsibility too. It means our behaviour and attitudes matter. We are called to live differently from the world. Both Jesus and Peter call us to demonstrate Christ-like lives of light among those around us so they will give glory to God. We're different from the world, so we must act differently from it. The sermon demands a response. We can't just confess our Christian faith but remain the same as the culture. The light is fundamentally different from the darkness. So we must live in the good of all that Christ has done in and for us. That means leaving our old lives behind and drawing on the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit at work in us to help us live lives in ways that reflect His holiness. The Sermon on the Mount is the doorway to the radical new life we're called to live in when we put our trust in Jesus and enter his kingdom. Those that embrace Jesus' message and his coming kingdom are its beneficiaries. But we are not just beneficiaries. Through two very simple metaphors, Jesus paints a profound picture of kingdom life for his disciples. We are salt we are light. This is our transformed nature. Our transformed lives become the very vehicles through whom the kingdom itself grows and expands. We're preservatives in the culture, creating fertile soil for the seed of the gospel. Through us, the kingdom message penetrates the culture, getting everywhere and creating a reaction. To some, it brings the smell of life, to others of death. We season the culture, bringing out the vibrant flavours of the gospel, making it attractive to those who are being saved. And through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, he transforms us into lights in the darkness, lights that guide the way for others to find Jesus too. Let me close with a challenge from Spurgeon. Christian people, you and I are living in the midst of men and women who are in a state of gross darkness. They will never have any light anywhere in this world except from you and from me and the gospel we believe and teach. They are watching us. Do they see something different about us? Do we so live as to lead them to come and ask us? Why do you always look so peaceful? How is it that you're so balanced? How can you stand up to the things that you do? What is this thing that you've got? If they do, we can then tell them that wondrous, amazing, but tragically neglected news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and to give men a new nature and a new life and to make them children of God. Christian people alone are the light of the world today. Let us live and function as children of the light. In your small groups, please consider the following questions. 
What did you learn from this talk? What are three effects of salt that we have on the culture? What are some practical things we can do to be available for the Holy Spirit to permeate the culture? Who can you be salt and light to? Pray for them. What are some things you would like prayer for to help you to be more salty and to shine more brightly? Pray for one another. Shine, Jesus, shine.